Welcome to Kashris on the Air, your weekly radio show dealing with kosher issues for the kosher consumer. And I'm your host, Rabbi Yosef Wickler, editor of Kashris Magazine. And tonight's show, I'm sure, is going to be satisfying and valuable to every single person listening. We have eight different topics, and I hope to get through all of them at least partway. <laughs> uh, there's, uh, the first thing is to talk a little bit about last week. Last week, I did a little bit of a unique program. And if you missed it, uh, it's still available online, uh, different ways you can get it. One is, uh, it could be you can get it on our website, the J Radio website. Uh, it, or if not, uh, it was on the, um, it was recorded um, and should be available one way or the other. Uh, the Facebook way is, is the, probably the best, I, I assume, although I don't use Facebook. But uh, it's good to listen. Anyway, last week's program, I got the biggest response in, in a long time. Many, many people called me up. And the, basically, they were all saying more or less the same thing. They appreciated very much the program, and they all want to have all the names of the, of the rabbis that I mentioned. Uh, last week, we talked about 10 rabbis, organizations, and they were real. And one of them is near rabbi. It's just a... Uh, second type of group, but the, but basically there were you know all the nine rabbis and then a group, and and it was to talk about the standards that they have and where the weaknesses might, might be and where people might not feel comfortable with some of them, and I try to avoid lush and horror. We don't say names, so yes, you, I, I can't possibly give out these names. And uh, what I what I did years ago, it's so many years ago, I can't remember how what year it was. But in the very early years, I remember I, I made up, I tried to make, give a, a classes, uh, public classes, on the recommended hashgachos. And what would happen invariably, which is this, is this classic kashvist type of thing, is that there was one organization that I mentioned that night, and uh, it was, by the way, the beginning when Hakel started. The first Hakel meeting, Hakel program was me, and Rabbi Ephraim Waxman, I'm sure he, he was more uh, important. But a lot of people came to hear what I had to say about kashrus because I promised to tell them what hashkachas they could rely upon, and I did. And it, but sure enough, I don't know how long afterwards somebody cast aspersions, and I felt bad that was one hashkacha that I mentioned as a positive one that I learned more information about and probably wouldn't have recommended it and certainly wouldn't recommend it in the future. And that, that taught me that it's very, very hard to, uh, to make these lists up. And I, I applaud the people in the CRC in Chicago. They have a list on, on web, the web, and it's a very good list. A lot of research goes into it. It's uh, the crcweb.org. And they, on that site, they have uh, what they call other agencies. And it's a very, very good listing. Uh, but again, it's, uh, it's every, everyone makes decisions about how far they want to go. So we'll call it the American standard of kashrus. Wouldn't necessarily call it the uh, Hamish standard, but we'll call it the American standard of kashrus. But it's a very good list that I always recommend it to different people when they call. They're looking for recommended hashkachas. But we ourselves do not do that anymore. Um, and we certainly don't want to say anybody's any not good. When you ask the specific question, can I use this hashkocha, can I not use it, is this something to rely upon? So then I have a little way of answering and to say yes and no. In most cases, I don't say to the person the hashkocha is not any good or anything like that. We don't go into that area and we don't start telling stories. But what we do is we, we try to say it's not for you or uh, I would suggest something else. you know, And, and we, we try to steer them away from it without actually... Um, saying something that would fall borders on Lush and Hara. That's what we try to do. And hopefully we're successful. In any event, there is no list of not recommended Ashkachas. It doesn't exist. And the only way to find out is to ask people, what, can I rely on this or can I not rely on it? The next thing I, I'm going to talk about tonight is the strawberries. Um, I'm going to be talking about strawberries. I'm going to talk about cranberry granola low-fat I'm going to talk about Cuisinart CVAP, Shahako Peppers, Argentina uh, Kosher Mafia, uh, Poland's Problem, and Hafrush's Hall, if we get that far. I don't think we'll get that far, but we may. And in any event, strawberries, blueberries, and raisins. You know, 
I just came across something today. This afternoon, I was looking for the over material for this program, <laughs> and I, I found out that there's something, a very interesting uh, feature, a thing, thing I found out, which is it's, it was extraordinary to me. Um, and I'll show you it to you in a, in a second. So the question is strawberries. That's the most popular issue, strawberries. And what I found is that, just this is, uh, I was trying, trying to see when this came out. I don't even know when this was first printed. But whatever it was, this is, there are a few articles about strawberries that are very, very important. And the most important one is uh, from this woman, the name of, I think it's a woman, Sriyanka Lahiri, Dr. Sriyanka Lahiri, which we'll mention her in a minute. I think it's a she. In any event, uh, strawberries has always been an issue. And washing strawberries has always been an issue. First, it was, it was an issue just because of health reasons, because they used so many uh, sprays on the, uh, on the strawberries to keep away the bugs. There's a whole list of insects that attack the strawberries. I have it listed here somewhere. Um, let me see if I can find a list. Um, yeah. Thrips, mites, aphids, army worms, and then this fly that we're going to talk about tonight. So strawberries are filled with these, um, filled with uh, pesticides. And uh, believe it or not, according to the Environmental Working Group, strawberries have the highest level of pesticide contamination among produce. According to Medicine Net, the report tested 36,000 samples of 48 types of conventionally grown strawberries. You didn't know there were so many types, right? 48 types. And they did 36,000 samples. The findings showed nearly 70% of strawberries to contain pesticide residues and at least 20 different pesticides at that. Imagine that. 20 different pesticides. And 70% of the, of the strawberries that they studied, out of the 36,000, 70% of them, had remainder of pesticides. So that's what you're eating when you eat the strawberries, unless you wash them off. That's the first level. Now, the question we're talking about is washing them off going to help for the insects. Now, they, they actually, there's a dirty dozen. I don't know if you ever heard of that. There's a dirty dozen is an annual list of the top 12 types of products that contain the, the, the highest amount of pesticide residue. So the uh, and 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 always uh, strawberries is, is leading that list. It's the number one pesticide uh, problem in, in, uh, in with with, um, with with produce. The number. Let me see if I can set, shut that off because certainly not what I wanted. Okay, we got that off. Now, if uh, so, we have. A problem with pesticides in the strawberry. What's going on about this um, strawberries? Well, recently strawberries became a very big issue, and I'm getting calls about strawberries again, even though I thought it was well understood by everybody. I see it's not, because there was a there's a I don't know if you know what's going on on the web. It's crazy things that happen there. But one thing that is there's a there's a place called TikTok. You can skip it. But that's a place called TikTok. And TikTok is videos and trends. And it seems that somebody went and reported something on, uh, on there about finding insects in their strawberries, and they have a video of it. And the whole secular world today is going crazy because TikTok, that's the name of this uh, website, they came out with the, mentioning that uh, it is a big problem with strawberries having worms in it, bugs in it, etc. And you see them, you see them on the, in the pictures, in the videos. So there were so many different things that happened. I, I, I read a, a bunch of material that came across my desk because somebody called up to ask about it. And sure enough, 
there's about a, a half a dozen or more suggestions. This one says use hot water. This one says use cold water. This one says salt. This one says vinegar. Vinegar and salt. This kind of salt. This much salt. That much salt. This long. That long. You can't imagine everybody tried everything under the sun. Okay? That, and they all say, you know, that it helps. You have to remember, in the secular world, they don't care if they eat a few bugs. You don't want to eat too many, and they don't want to be grossed out and see the bugs themselves. But there's no question that they, they understand that they might be eating some insects. By us, we don't want to eat one, and we have a problem that even whether we don't want to, we do eat them, and uh, we don't want to eat them, and we all know we probably ingest some kind of uh, bacteria and sometimes bugs during the course of the year. It might happen. But, but here, we're not allowed, to, not allowed to eat something that requires checking without checking. We don't, we, and if something can't be checked because it's so infested, we're not really supposed to eat it. I mean, that's the halacha. We can't get away from it. So for us, it's completely different than whatever you're going to see or hear about in the secular world. But this is, uh, this is what happened with this thing, with the uh, TikTok, with, uh, with all the people who were tumbling today. Now, the, the, the big thing, that I- the big issue in the strawberry is a fly. Now, I, I was always understanding with the fly. I didn't get it straight. Tonight, now I have it straight. What is this fly? Because I never saw the fly. I always see these maggots crawling around. They're all offspring from the, the spotted wing drosophilia. They, pronounce, they, 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 they make it simplified by calling it SWD. It's a drosophilia, spotted wing drosophilia. And this uh, fly lays eggs inside the fruit. And it's a little extraordinary. I'm going to explain to you now. And you can't even imagine what I'm telling you. You would never think of this in your life. I'm, I'm telling you, it's, it's very interesting. Anyway, this woman, I think it's a woman, Sriyanka Lahiri. She's a doctor, a doctorate. And she's the assistant, or she, or he, whatever it is, assistant professor at the University of Florida. Should have looked it up, what, she, what it is, if it's male or female. Anyway, they talks about the, the, these, these white worms that you find on the, uh, on, on, on the strawberry. They're really maggots from a fly, which we just mentioned, Drosophila. And, Drosophila, I'm sorry, the Drosophila. And it's, it, this is a quote now from Ms. Lahiri, and this quote is gold. That's why I have to find out if it is a woman or a man. Probably I'll come across it. It's an invasive species from East Asia that infects, infests berry crops, and it's not just strawberry, it's also blueberry, and has been seen in the USA, you ready for this? Since 2008. When I read that, I went ballistic. Because I remember that's about when I became aware of this whole strawberry problem and, and you think, oh, where were we for years? And now, now, first now, today, this afternoon, right now, I first discovered that it invaded the U.S. doesn't mean there were none here, but it means that it became an issue here in 2008. So that answers up why when we were growing up and later on, we didn't hear about this. Because maybe there were some, but it may not have been as bad as it is now. Because that's what it's written over here, that it came from, it has been in the USA since 2008. Okay, so maybe we got strawberries from other countries too. But basically, strawberries are coming from America. And all of our berries, and yeah, they're from other countries nearby, but it doesn't sound like it was... Uh, a problem for us before the year 2008. And that would answer up why we didn't hear about this years ago. Now, what's special about this fly? Listen to this. It's amazing. The Kaddish Baruch gives this fly a piece of equipment that we never heard of before. I'm sure you never heard about it, and I definitely never heard of it before. It's called an ovipositor. Posit means to put. An ovi is from the ovum. So the inside, she lays her eggs inside the fruit. Listen to it. It's called, it's called a serrated egg-laying device. Her, she, it's called her ovipositor. It cuts and puts them inside. 
and you don't see a break in the surface, goes in somehow, gets inside, and be able to deposit them inside. She lays the eggs inside, and she does it in ripe fruit. And the maggots hatch inside and continue to feed inside the fruit. That's why we didn't get this whole thing before. The maggots go largely undetected during the harvest. And that's why they're not knocking them out before they end up in your, in your stores. S- since common... Uh, 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 and, the, and the resulting haggis... Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, sorry. Since common fruit flies can only lay their eggs in softening, damaged, or rotting fruit, the maggots hitchhiking inside fresh-looking fruit definitely belong to the SWD species. This, this thing we're talking about, the Drosophila, it's, it's, um, it definitely, and when you're getting a piece of fruit that looks good, and, you see, and there are bugs in it, it's because it's this Drosophila with the ovipositor. That's the hop. That I didn't know this whole thing before today. And that's why it's so different than the other, uh, that was before 2008, and what's in going on with other things. Of course, we always saw bugs and everything and rotting fruit. Yeah, that's a sign it's no good. You know, that always happened. The apples, when I was a kid growing up, we saw apples had worms in it. Everything had these maggots and these uh, worms and whatever, because the food was rotting. But here, and so, I don't know if you ever saw this, there's some beautiful videos in Israel of, 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 these, of these small little maggots inside peppers. And in America, I've never seen it because the quality is so high. But in Israel, you sometimes get rotting fruit. And over there, they see, it seems that they have a nice amount of this problem, and we don't have it here at all. So, again, it's got to do with you know, the type of, of, of fly or insect, etc., and how they work. But this one is the big problem. That's very, very interesting. Now, there are other kinds, of, we mentioned some of the other pests that are there, but this is the one that's the, causing the major issue. Nothing can be done after the eggs get inside this ripe fruit. You can't stop it. They're growing inside. What are you going to do? Cut it all up into 16 pieces? I mean, what they, what's going to the strawberry if you cut it into 16 pieces? Even then you won't get it all. So the only goal is to keep the, 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 the insect away. Now, what happens with raisins is the same thing. The raisins get these flies coming while it's sitting on the tree, and it's, it's past, it's uh, becoming a, I'm not on a tree, I mean, it's on a vine, but it's on the vine past when it becomes a grape. You don't have these in the grape stage. You can have an aphid or something, little teeny-weeny things like that, mites. You can have, you wash it off well, and do it, there's a whole methodologies, but you can get it. But when you're talking about raisins, they go inside. And it's drosophilia. And it's the same thing that as it's going on with any of the berries and this raisins. And it's an it's a extremely impossible thing to get out. Okay. So this, oh, here it says that she is a woman. Baruch Hashem. I was, that's what I thought. She strongly recommends washing the strawberries and all other fresh fruit and vegetables before eating them. However, since the maggots live deep inside the fruit. I'm quoting now from this article. I don't know really where I have it from, but it doesn't make much difference. It's, it says that you can't get it by, uh, uh, she said, it, but washing is not going to do it. She strongly recommends washing them to get off the bugs and then to get off the, uh, the pesticides. However, the maggots live deep inside the fruit. Washing won't get rid of them entirely. Staying submerged in water might force a few of them out, says Lahiri. She said, you're not going to get it out with the water. This is what all of these cautious organizations are telling people. I disagree. Rabbi Goldstein has been talking about it and Rabbi Vaya. And we don't feel that this is significant enough to soak it, even though they have videos, and even though the Hashkashvah organization is suggesting it, uh, I see from a professor that it can't work. That's what she says. She says it, uh, it might force a few of them out, and she isn't aware of any benefits of adding salt to the water. 
even though that's what everyone's suggesting to do. And she also says, also, I'm not sure that fresh strawberry taste will remain after being submerged in salt water for too long. So there you go. A, she doesn't think it works. B, if you do it, you're going to kill the strawberry. So you're not going to keep it in that long. So you're doing the minimum amount of time, and you're hoping to get every single one of them out. That's, that's, that's unfair. If the problem is the insects, so keep it in there for an hour, an hour, you know. I don't kill the strawberry. Who told you to eat a strawberry? You want to eat a strawberry? Do it, do it l'chumra. Don't do it to make it taste good. Do it to get the bugs out. Uh, how much it could take, I, I don't know. I don't believe in, that any of these other methods work. I think she's talking sense that, that it does, nothing it works to take out the insects because they're deeply inside the fruit and can live in the fruit and eat from the fruit and they don't get burnt, they don't get, uh, um, uh, they, they, they don't uh, get suffocated. They're able to breathe and live inside the fruit and eat the fruit. Amazing. That's what goes on. Now, she also adds one more last thing, which is important for us to hear. We would need an insane amount of pesticides to follow a zero-maggot grub-tolerance policy in our food, which is neither environmentally friendly nor beneficial for human health. In other words, there is no way to say that there are no insects in our food. And I agree with that. I think that even when you're buying foods, whether it's coming with ashkocha and they're frozen or they're fresh, or it's you, yourself buying something and eating it, I'm sure that in the course of the year, each one of us is eating insects. But the halacha only requires us to look for them in the places where they're found no, normally, or if there's an outbreak where they're being found. It, it, the, the halacha requires us to check something that need, that has a mir hamatsui, that, uh, that has at least a significant percentage whether that's 10% or whatever it is, some number of the uh, percent of the crop that has these insects. But if you have it lower than that, if the threshold is lower, there's no chiv to check. So, for example, probably positive is one of the strongest, and anyway, definitely a strong, uh, a strong level of kashvist. They tell, they tell openly... There's no such thing as saying there's no insects in here. I'm telling you there's insects in here. That's what they told me. That's what Rabbi Goldstein said to me. Everyone it says that it says that there are no insects in the in their vegetables is lying. It's impossible. And that's what he says, and he works on this full day every day. So what what then does he make his claim on? He makes a claim based upon the fact that a high percentage is is checked uh, as a sample, and that they check a number of times. And the basis of that, halakhically, it is permitted to eat this food. Aside from the fact they grow it a special way, etc. But, but even just the growing is not enough. You have to the growing and the testing, and then you can eat it according to halacha. In reality, you probably do get certain insects in the foods that we eat with the hushkachas, the best hushkachas, five hushkachas, ten hushkachas, doesn't make a difference because we can't really stop it completely. All we have to do is what the halacha requires of us. On the rest, we daven. Hashem should give us kosher food. My next point is about granola, I'm sorry, cranberry granola low fat. Now, what I thought's interesting about this, it's a, it's a kosher alert that I just got uh, today or yesterday, well, yesterday or two days ago, from the, okay. There are Listen to this. I added them up. Didn't take too long. 18 different brands. I'm not going to read them to you, but I'm just going to tell you a few of them. Uh, the 18 different brands of cranberry granola low-fat, all mislabeled. Now, why 18 uh, cranberry granola low-fat mislabeled? You know the answer as well as I do. They're all made by the same person, the same, the same company. So you have a, one company that is working, is producing for 18 different companies. Okay? So it, it's mislabeled. It says okay, and it's really okay dairy equipment. All right, maybe it's not the end of the world for you, but, it's, but it means it's a mislabel. And this mislabel affected 
18 different companies. I'll give you a few of the names. Food Town, Fairway Markets, Food City, West Side, Foodies, Village Market. So a lot of these stores, the supermarkets, have purchased this thing with, a, with their, what they call private label with their name on it, and it comes with the OK symbol. And all of the packages from all these 18 companies is all mislabeled. Now you understand how we get so many mislabeled products occurring in the field today. It's amazing, right? Okay. Just just to give you an idea. Now this is something I'm sharing with you that I got from uh, Rabbi Avram Marmerstein, who is a very interesting individual. He runs the Hashgacha called the uh, it's called uh, Mahadran, Mahadran Kosher, I believe. There's a, there's a Mahadran kosher in Israel uh, that for the Rabbi Avram uh, uh, Rubin. Maybe it's the same name, maybe not the same name, but this is America. Rabbi Marmestein's been doing this for 30 years or more. Uh, he once wrote articles for us in Cautious Magazine. He's a wonderful gentleman. And he lives in, the, in Manhattan. Um, now, Rabbi Marmestein sends me material on a regular basis, and this is one thing I thought was very interesting. There's a new product out called the Cuisinart CVAP. Forget about it. We'll explain in a minute what it's all about. Don't worry about it. You don't have to memorize the name. It's a Cuisinart oven. It's the CVAP. We'll see, we'll see in a second what it is. Now, this is, they do this in a in commercial setting, and they do this for home also. You could buy this machine. It's called the Cuisinart Combi Oven for Home. That's a combination oven, and you could toast in there or you steam your food. Uh, it regulates the humidity and the temperature, and it goes from, it can be lower than 100 degrees. You can actually do some kind of uh, cooking or whatever you want to call it, humidifying it or whatever it is, at less than 100 degrees, and it goes higher than 500 degrees. So it's a, it's a, it's a pretty powerful little unit, and it uses steam, and we'll see in a second what it's all about. Now, the question that came up is the following. Rabbi Marmestein gives a shkocha to uh, restaurants, and it's called Mahadran Kashris, his hashkocha. And they, and they have uh, CVAP ovens there. So he, he said, I really wasn't thinking too much about it. I mean, we have to make sure that they're kosher and we watch them and, and, and nobody does any cooking in it. I mean, fine, but not, I didn't worry about it. Suddenly, somebody came to him, and they, they wanted to have, because of the whole uh, corona business, they wanted to have Suda Shabbos outside in the Kirov setting. They wanted, as a Kirov organization, they wanted to have outdoor seating at restaurants Friday night, Shabbos. So would they be allowed to use the CVAP for Shabbos? Well, let's see why. Let's see what's going on. So now let's find out what is a CVAP. I never heard about it until today. I just opened this thing up today. The CVAP oven, it stands for CV is controlled vapor. So they, they originally it was Colonel Sanders who makes Kentucky Fried Chicken that all sold all over the country. So they used this machine, the CVAP, to keep it the controlled vapor, to keep it uh, moist and warm for long periods of time because it it, it puts in humidity. It, it, It gives steam in there, and it can preserve the temperature. And believe it or not, that says that that's what they use to keep their Kentucky Fried Chicken. It's done at a certain time, and it sits around maybe a whole day. I don't know. Yeah, it says chicken was fried in the morning, and they put it in there, it tastes crisp and tasty, the same no matter when it was served. It's amazing. It's a holding oven, basically. But today, the CVAP ovens now are used by many people to cook food at low temperatures, something like a sous vide cooking. The CVAP allows cooking either with vapor or no vapor at low temperatures. The presence of the vapor speeds up the t- cooking time. So the question comes up, could they be using this, or is this a Dover Hamosif Hevel? Is it adding on heat? 
You're allowed to put things up before Shabbos as long as it's not moisif hevel. You can you can you can do hatmana. You can stuff it into a cover it over with something, whatever it is. Put it into a, a container, whatever. As long as it's not adding heat, it can retain heat but not add heat. So this is his question. I'm not going to go into it because it's it's complicated and uh, it's really for Rabbanim to decide. And he just discusses the pros and the cons. And if you want to know more, so you can you can either contact Rabbi Avram Marmestein from the um, Mahadran Kashrus, or you can contact your own Kashrus organizations and ask about the CVAP, the uh, Controlled Vapor Ovens from Cuisinart. That's at least the one that we're talking about. Now here's another one. Also came by the way from Rabbi Marmestein, but it came a few weeks ago. I don't know why I didn't. I, I don't think I mentioned it. If I did, I just so I'm reiterating because he has a picture here of boxes of peppers, and these boxes of peppers come from different places. Actually, it looks to me like there's two names here, um, and one of them is. St. David's, and the other one is S-O-H, whatever that is. And the, uh, they're using hydroponics. So they're growing this in hydroponics. Hydroponics is questionable whether the brocha should be shahakal or hardama. So believe it or not, it's kedai to look, if you can see on the boxes of peppers in the store, whether it says hydroponic, if it says hydroponic, then you can ask your own love whether you can have to make a shahakal or hardama. Probably Bidiyevet the Hadam is good. I hope so. Um, otherwise, we're all a little, a little in trouble because we're not going to really know. When you go to a Simcha or anything, and wherever you're going, and no one's going to tell you this is a Shahako pepper. My goodness, who's going to think of that? But this is a, when you're going shopping for yourself, you certainly can uh, be aware of it. Now, in the news, two things came up. Uh, probably the most dramatic is what is going on in Argentina. Now, I don't know, because I didn't have a chance to write to anybody yet and to find out, and it's really hot and heavy, so I'm just going to give you the background because I want you to understand what is happening in the world, and this is a happening thing in the world. The truth, I don't know. I have no idea. I, I think I know, but I don't want to say. It seems that there's a, a person, we'll leave his name out, it's not, not necessary, he has. He is a pretty well wealthy Jewish fellow. He owns a, a supermarket chain, and uh, he's a businessman there in Argentina. And he decided to sell kosher meat at a very rock bottom price, but rock bottom. According to these articles from the Jerusalem Post, it it it, it seems that it, it, the price that he's charging is fifty percent of what the regular kosher places are charging. Is it possible? I don't know. Again, I don't have the details in front of me, but that's the claim, that he's selling it at half price. And he claims that there's a kosher mafia, and that's the rabbis. The rabbis are a kosher mafia, and they're causing the prices to be sky-high doubled. He said 20% more he could understand, but 100% more he can't understand. So this is always an old, old, old story. The price of kosher uh, is, is the fact that kosher is a small production with a lot of workers, a number of mashkichim, um, the salting process, the cold water process, the flicking process, you know, if you use the only cold water, not hot water, it's hard to do the flicking. Everything is time and money and people. So it does go up, and I don't think the 20% is, is a fair number. But I looked at night and the prices here, and it seems to me that you can get a real good kosher piece of meat that doesn't seem to be much higher than the, the secular world today. I don't see it as a ripoff here in America. Um, in other countries, it may be a bigger disparity because there's a smaller clientele who are buying it. So I really don't know the details in, our, in Argentina, and I don't even want to try to figure it out. But it seems that there's a little bit of overstatement on his part. But he feels that it was very, very high. And, and, and now Argentina is suffering very much. I'll, I'll tell you a number, but you won't believe me. It's just a, but it's a fact. 
the estimated inflation rate in Argentina is about 40 percent in the, in 2020. This year, approximately the the uh, the inflation rate in Argentina was 40 percent. So that complicates the whole issue more. But this rabbi thought he'd go for it, and he, and not rabbi, I mean, he said the owner of the store, this company, and he attacked very strongly the rabbis, which is the problem, and he used the word mafia, which is not a nice word, and he's saying that they uh, were uh, utilizing, you know, to, to overcharge. And, <laughs> of course, the other thing that they're giving all kind of a lot of extra fat and weight and bones, and so they're not really getting meat anyway. All right. He claims that he can do it under 50% he can sell. He claims that he could sell this thing called asado for 290 pesos for a kilo, as opposed to what the kosher is going for now, 80, 800 pesos. So less than... Uh, a half and maybe closer to a third, he feels he can sell kosher to. I don't know. I, I, I can't, I'm not there, I'm not studying the prices. But I do know some of the rabbis out there, and I know they're not fakers, that's for sure. Um, and this is not what I'm talking about. That this particular person said what he said, and the rabbi had it effect, it doesn't mean anything to me. Oh, it hit the papers, and it, and it makes it look exciting, the kosher mafia, and he's fighting the kosher mafia, and he's at Zadik, okay, fine, whatever. I don't really care about that. Could be he is, could be this, right, whatever. The problem is that there were two organizations. One is the international uh, heads of the conservative movement, and the other organization is a local conservative, conservative Jews uh, in Argentina, and they came out in support of this fellow from the supermarket chain against the rabbis. That's a problem. And that's, a, it's a pointing to a very, very big problem. It's not a kosher meat business problem. It's a religious issue about the involvement of the conservative world in kosher. Years ago, I did communicate with them, and I tried to get them to understand that we were, you know, we, we couldn't work with them. And they said, no, yeah, we were, they we're happy to let the Orthodox take care of the kosher. That was maybe 30 years ago. I spoke to the, some of the heads of the organization. Unfortunately, in the, during that time, some of these conservative rabbis and the organization came out against Mr. Rabashkins, and it came out against other people, and caused a lot of trouble here in America. And now I see the similar things going on in Argentina. And uh, it's sad. And the bigger problem than all of this, which I've mentioned before, is that there are conservative organizations and individuals who are giving what they call kosher certification, and some claim, claim to do it under orthodox standards, even though they're, they're not orthodox. They claim to do orthodox standards of kosher. They're, they, they're determining whether they do the right thing or not. And that is confusing to a lot of people today. So that's something to be a little bit apprehensive about. Next, I'm going to talk a few minutes about Poland. Not much, a little bit. Poland has gone through the mill. In Poland, they just about slammed Poland. It had the, the, the kosher the ban on sl a kosher slaughter for export had basically been passed, and they wouldn't be allowing export. Fortunately, the farmers weren't happy because there were five things in the, in the law. And kosher and, and halal, slaughter, was only one of the five. The other ones were limiting, uh, a ban on fur animals, on breeding fur, fur animals. Mink was the big one. They were, they were going to outlaw raising fur, uh, animals for fur. A ban on the use of animals for circuses. You could, I don't know if you've ever seen the circuses, 
But in the circuses, you could see animals performing some amazing feats, and it's a bigger part of entertainment. And they would forbid it in, in, po- in Poland. The third thing is they wanted to restrict the animals, keeping animals on chains. From now on, you would have to let the animals walk around and the people run away. <laughs> that's, that's what would be the new way of doing things. They want to say you couldn't keep a, an animal chained up. It's unbelievable. This is happening in, in 2020. This just about went through. And the fifth thing is they want to introduce the possibility of inspecting animal organizations with the assistance of, introdu- uh, of the police and the municipal guard. <laughs> They're going to bring out the police and the municipal guard to, to make sure that everybody is taking care of their animals properly. That's amazing. So the, people weren't happy with some of the parts of it. So fortunately, it got shoved aside for a while. But the, they did pass on a certain level and that's why that they pushed it ahead for 2025, which means that if nothing happens, maybe in the year 2025, which is not, it's only five hours away, uh, they, they will not just reintroduce it, but they'll, they'll it'll be effective. So there's going to be, during between now and 2000, in December 31st, 2025, the end of, the end of, Dece- uh, the end of 2025, it, they have to come to grips with it and decide if Poland will give up Shrita and uh, Halal and all these other things, the five things that I was talking about. Uh, so that really, there's more on the topic, but I don't think we're going to spend the time right now to go through it. It leads me to the last main topic, which hopefully we'll be able to discuss a little more in depth. I'm very, very excited to see this article, and I want to share it with you. Again, it's one of those articles that I just got around reading. It's from October 2020, which is, you know, not, not that late, right? From the COR in Canada, a wonderful organization. And this is an article written by Rabbi Heber, Rabbi Tzvi Heber, whom I've dealt with many times. And it's an interesting article about Hafrosha Schala. And you'll see why it's so interesting. How do you do a Froshaschale in a commercial setting? We're talking about a bakery, a pizza store, a novelty bake shop. How do you do a Froshaschale? Well, no problem. Give them a mashkiach, some, some plastic gloves, and let them do it. Just take off a piece of chale, make a bracha, fine. No bracha, this bracha, yeah, whatever it is, but let, let them do it. But the problem is that uh, most places do not have a mashkiach tamidi. Most places that are cooking, baking, do not have a mashkiach tamidi. So that's the problem. So how do you do it? So we mentioned here many times that some people rely that the goy takes it off, and then the Jew comes back the next day in the morning, and he checks on it, etc. Okay, but you, we're giving Ashkocha, and it's not one store, it's the whole COR for the whole Canada. And how should we do it? That's the question. Um, now, I'm not going to discuss whether you need to take hush, the chal or not. We're going to work from the premise you need the chal because it's a Jewish owner, etc. The simplest and most, I'm reading from now from, the, from this article called Bridging the Gap, a beautiful article by Rabbi Tzvi Heber from the COR in Canada, that's that, in Toronto. The simplest and most straightforward approach to a frosh's challah would be for the mashkiach to immediately separate challah after the dough is needed. I mean, isn't that what we all do, right? However, bakeries and pizza stores usually do not ha- employ a full-time mashkiach, a mashkiach timidi, as it's not required by halacha, and it would be unaffordable for many of those, these smaller establishments. Instead, the establishment employs a root mashkiach. I don't know if you know what that is because we don't have it here in America too much. But it is, in Canada, it's the way it goes. A root mashkiach would travel on the day between 5, 10, or more, maybe 12 businesses and do something in each one of them. So when, the, when, the, when he would come, this would be done. And then he'd go and it couldn't be done again, let's say, till tomorrow. 
And if you needed him, you call him and he comes right back. So, yes, he, he has like an area that he works, and there's a certain number of stores, and he has to cover them a certain way. And this way he, he, he can do a Frosh's Chala, he can do Bidikas Toloyim, he can do a lot of different things in different stores. He'll check in the inventory. Whatever, he, whatever the Hashkacha told him to do in that particular place, he has to do over there. And most of the places he, check, he checks every day, but he's only there a short period of time. This is something, as I said, it's not so common in America. I will tell you that there is a Hamish Hashkacha in Brooklyn, and there may be many of them actually, but one in particular that I know that employs this method. The average time the Mashkiach spends in any one of their establishments is a half an hour. And they try to make it every single day. And you don't know which half an hour is coming. But you do know that he came today. And if he came today, he's probably not coming back today. So you can't give such a hashkocha to anybody that has even the slightest suspicion. It has to be somebody that you really think is a reliable individual. But you need the mashkiach to do certain things. You want to be sure that your rules are being followed out. And therefore, you have a mashkiach going there. But if it's chas v'shalom, you don't trust the people in any which way. A half an hour a day is not going to do anything. Okay. Now, we have this fellow working, he's the mashkiach, and he's not mashkiach, he's coming into different establishments, and he's a root mashkiach. We, by the way, one of the root mashkiachim was a, uh, one of the mashkiach of the year awarded a couple of years ago from Canada, from, 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 from uh, COR. Anyway, uh, he, uh, he visits different, uh, several times during the day. This one says... He visits several times during the day, but I've seen them just doing once a day. The root mashkiach might not arrive at the establishment until after the dough maker finishes preparing several batches of dough. He might arrive after the large batches of dough were divided into product-sized pieces, or after those pieces have already been baked, or from time to time, even after the product has been sold and consumed. Now, how does he take a fresh what you ate? Okay? If the mashkiach is not in the establishment in time to separate the challah, how can the establishments continue to bake and sell their products? If they have to take off challah and, he's, and it's already been eaten, that's a little bit technically difficult, right? To establish a food service system for a fresh challah, our Abunim decided that we should implement a two tiered Hafrosh's challah program, made of two independent systems for separating challah. This is very interesting. I think, I think the, uh, some of the nationals in America also do the same thing. The first system begins with the dough maker separating a small fistful of dough from the large batch of dough, which is put aside until the mashkiach arrives. Now, you have to understand this dough maker is probably not Jewish. And we're relying on him to take off every time he's making a batch of dough, to take some dough off and put it aside. And of course, from that, the mashkiach will deal tomorrow morning or this afternoon or whatever. But, but if you're going to do that, um, this piece of dough, which we refer to as the leftover piece of dough, is the designated piece from which challah ultimately will be ultimately separated. In other words, that's not the challah. The goy takes off, it's not the challah. He's not making challah. He's not the hafrash's challah. He's taking off a section. And from that will be drawn the actual challah. Okay. Rather, the leftover piece of dough now represents the larger dough, so the hafrash's challah can be performed from that piece, because it represents the bigger piece. The rest of the dough can now enter production. Surprisingly, halacha allows for hafrosha's chutzla arets to be separated from the leftover piece of dough even after the rest of the dough is sold and consumed. Now, where is this coming from? He has a footnote over here. But it's long one here. Uh... I don't have one place, 
they it's very involved. But they quote Rishlomo Zalman Orbach about making a bracha and not making a bracha on that. And in any event, this is the procedure from the COR based upon their halachic research. Okay. So uh, we have this, the first method. In an environment where many different doughs are mixed daily, how can a mishkiach be sure, this is the key question, that a leftover piece of dough was separated from each batch that is mixed? In other words, how do I know that he left me three pieces of dough or seven pieces of dough, but maybe, maybe there were ten. There were ten batches. Maybe he faked the whole thing out. I don't know. So how can you know? If the mashkich is not on site during the dope making, isn't it possible that the dough maker did not separate the leftover piece of dough? While there's no apparent reason for the dough maker to deliberately skip this step, it's possible that while working, perhaps alone in the middle of the night, that he may simply forget to separate it. Let's say if the six or seven batches of dough are made on a certain day, then the dough maker might possibly separate the leftover piece of dough from five of them and forget about the others. How would the mashkiach know that leftover pieces of dough are missing? The remedy to this problem is to track the production of doughs through a hafrosheschala log. They keep a log of every time that they take something off. In such a log, every batch of dough that is mixed is recorded by the dough maker. So even though, so then he sort of, if he said, I did 10 last night, so he has to produce 10 pieces. Now, could he fake the whole thing out and pull them out and say, this is it? All right, quite fine. But we're talking about hafrosheschala de rabbanan. And chutzlar is for sure. And it's, it's not, you know, this is as far as the rabbanim feel you have to go. So, yes, uh, we assume he'll do it. We'll assume he'll take them off. That's his procedure. He's trained that way. And, you know, during the day we could spot him and uh, see if he's, uh, if he's cheating. And we could uh, look at him at night too and see if he's cheating. We, we, could, we, could, we could technically catch him on camera too. So I'm not sure that it's so terrible that uh, we're relying on some level that he's going to do what, he, what we're asking him to do over here. Because we're dealing with a very slight Durbanan, and, and we have control factors built in. Perfect it isn't, I admit, but this is what is being done. Now, uh, so the dough is done, this is the first way with the Hafrash's challah log, and then, of course, when the Meshkia comes, he takes off his dough, and that's the end of that one. That's it. The second system is called the Tevel Matzah system. This, by the way, is being used, for sure, by the OU and many of the Hashkachas. It's called the Tevel Matzah system. What you do is you put an, oh yeah, op, have an open box of Tevel Matzah. Tevel means matzah that they, there was no Hafrash's Truma and Maiser. And uh, it's, if, if you have it... Uh, And this tevel matzah is put in an open box in a room where the mixing of the dough takes place. It also means that also there was no, no, nothing was done to that matzah. No, no hafrashas challah, nothing. The tevel matzah is matzah that has been produced in a matzah bakery, but from which no challah has ever been separated. If the challah, I said the thing, it's just real, but the, I got that mixed up a little bit. We really were talking only about the... Uh, we're only talking here about the in of challah. It's table for challah. Okay. So if challah is not separated from the matzahs, they remain tevil. Hence the name tevil matzah. Through the generous assistance of the rabbis at the OU and the Kafke, because they're doing it also, the COR procures boxes of tevil matzahs that are produced especially for this pr- purpose. So in other words, the OU and the Kafke make sure that they produce matzahs that are tevel, that no hafrashas challah was made, and that's what's used by these different hashkach organizations, that they place a box of tevel matzah that's open, and then they're able to, to assign part of that as being challah for the, uh, the dough that we have over here. 
Each morning, here's how exactly how it's done. A mashkiach recites the special nusach, special words he has to say, that was meticulously developed and approved by the C.O.R. Abunim. Okay, it's, it's about uh, 20 lines. The recitation of this nusach, these, these 20 lines of uh, this little prayer here, uh, effectively separates a small amount of challah from the tevel matzah, which attempt, exempts the batch of dough in question from Pasha's challah. In other words, it says that the uh, p- part of the matzah from here uh, is going to be for the, uh, the, the dough that I'm using today. And then another one, another part over here is being used, and they just, it, you describe different parts of it, and you designate parts of those box of matzahs for the te- for the mat- for the uh, the chal that we're doing now. Now I know that when you do it in the house, you go ahead and you take a big thing, you take the size of a kazayas, and you then you call that for one dough. You'll do that. So if you have ten, you got, then you got ten kazayim. It's a lot already. So how are they doing that in the matzah bakery with the matzah that, that comes in the table box? So I'll peel luck, it doesn't have to be that all that much. So let's, let me read the language over here to you. The effect of this separation by recitation is the same as if Chal is physically separated from the batch of dough. The Nutzach is recited every day without a bracha, and it's made on a condition that what? If the regular Hafrosh's Chal system doesn't, go, doesn't work, then this, this, this takes over. The first, okay. Uh, since the first system generally works properly and it's not anticipated that the second system is needed many times during the year, so one full box of matzahs is more than enough for a full year. Uh, Now, you can figure it out yourself. That's not a kazayas for every every run, because we're assuming it's only a backup and there's only a small amount of problems and then you just have to have a little bit, a piyalacha, even a little bit, is considered chal. But sometimes they have to have a lot of other boxes, they have different boxes, and every time you produce something of a different grain, let's say you're using oats, or you're using wheat, you're using spelt, so you must have a different box of tevel matzah for that particular grain. Now, how many people make uh, matzahs out of spelt and of barley and of uh, you know, this? And so, but that, so all those five uh, species, uh, uh, wheat, uh, uh, barley, riots, and spelt, so they'll have boxes of matzahs for them if the company uses that, that grain. And they're getting them under O-U-O-K, in a, uh, O-U-O-K in the, here in the United States. And uh, this is being done in many places in the world. A new system, uh, a follow-up. So actually, we have two systems. We have the Tevomatzas, which with the, the Chala was not removed, and we have the actual Afrosha's Chala, but first being removed by a, a non-Jew, by a regular worker, and then later on taken by the Jew, in the morning or every time he comes by, even if he's only passing through in there half an hour, he can take the Hafrosh's challah from all the pieces that are left. Uh, they, they, and that's a standard today in the industry. Since it's a very small Durabonin, this is considered to be significant enough. And people shouldn't have to be nervous that this is not being done. The Kashvist agencies are on top of the situation. And uh, people should feel confidence that this is being carried out properly with any decent cautious organization. There's no need to fear for this. I told you many times about my, one time my Rebbe, Oshazim and Zatzal, I told them I saw this thing, what they're doing, where they're not taking it off at night, and they, 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 uh, the, 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 the goy takes off the challah, and in the morning he comes, and, he te- and the Rebbe Mashkiach takes it off of the owner, and Rabbi Zimman told me, that's also a system. Now here, at least what's going on with the national organizations is they have a backup and uh, they have a way of monitoring, and today especially with cameras, they have a way of monitoring that they are getting proper information on the, on the challah having been taken off in the beginning. So it's definitely improved from the way it was many years ago. 
And that's the end. We, we went through some very interesting material today. I hope you were able to get something valuable out of it. So until next week, this is your host, Rabbi Yosef Wickler, editor of Kashas Magazine. And if you want to reach us, the number is 718-336-8544 or 732-534-9363. And the email address is kashrus, K-A-S-H-R-U-S, at AOL.com. Until next week, this is Rabbi Yosef Wickler wishing you a wonderful week.